Good morning, Children's Health Defense. It is October 9th, 2023, and I'm here with James Corbett and James Roguski to talk about the WHO, the UN, conflicts of interest, and whatever's been happening lately. We have a special treat, and that is we're going to talk about the principal legal officer of the WHO who has been weighing in on what the rules are and how he thinks he can change them. We'll get to that in about 15 minutes. Until then, we're going to let James Roguski start talking about what happened this week. Well, the working group for the uh, international health regulations met from the 2nd to the 6th in Geneva. And normally what they've been doing is most of it has been in secret. And they start on Monday morning and they normally say, hi, you know, here's what we've been doing in secret since the last secret meetings that we had. And then they turn off the cameras and they spend most of the week doing everything in secret. That's what they've been doing for more than a year because the amendments were actually submitted way back on September 30th, 2022. So it's been more than a year that they're talking about this. And so I got up Monday morning thinking that I was going to be watching something that was going to put me right back to sleep because usually these things are very boring. Um, but then they dropped what I think is an absolute bombshell. The co-chair of the working group said very clearly that um, they don't think they're going to meet their deadline. Dear colleagues, we uh, have been uh, operating with the understanding that the package of the proposed amendments resulting from the work of this group would be finalized by January 2024 to meet the four-month deadline stated in Article 55. However, we believe that uh, we all share the same sentiment that uh, realistically, the whole package of amendments will probably not be ready by January 2024. We would like to ask the uh, Secretariat whether procedurally we could continue working until the 76th World Health Assembly in May 2024. I'd like to ask the Secretariat to provide some guidance in this matter. Now, let me explain what that deadline is. And in the International Health Regulations, Article 55, it says very clearly that any member nation or the Director General, if they want to submit amendments, they shall submit them four months in advance of the World Health Assembly. Well, the World Health Assembly meets the last week of every May, you know, once a year. And so, you know, somewhere near the end of January would be four months in advance of May of 2024. Well, then what they did is went on to ask the legal counsel for, um, you know, advice about what to do with this. And while he clearly stated the facts that, you know, this is a hard and fast rule, it's in the international health regulations, they're going to do everything they can to bend the daylights out of that rule to the point where, you know, I think they're breaking it. And the shock to me was that they actually said all of this in public and we have it on, you know, video. I, I would have thought for sure that this would be back room. You know, they, they really said, you know, the, quiet part out loud. So um, what you mean is that you the rules are that you have to submit the amendments um, four months in advance. And what the nations and the Bureau of the WHO want to do is not submit four months in advance. They want to submit at the last minute. 
And they say this is because they can't possibly conclude the negotiations by January. And yet they have a mandate to get the thing done and decided on by May. They don't tell you why there's such a big rush. If they can't get it done by January, then they have to wait till next year. But that's not what they want to do. They're they're trying to um, weasel their way out of providing you know the world with the final version of the amendments um, until they actually get voted on or even you know using a consensus process accepted without a vote. I I, I imagine that part of what they want to want uh, the public to conclude about this. Oh, it's the seventy fifth anniversary don't you know? So we got to make something big out of it or some some lame reason like that. But no, look, part of, partially this is speculation, but I have, since the very beginning, I have always imagined that this entire process, and I mean not just the WGIHR, but also the uh, INB, all of this uh, is in some to some extent the smokescreen for whatever they're doing behind closed doors in the back rooms that will be unveiled at the uh, 77th uh, World Health Assembly. I think that that has always been the plan. And now the, oh no, we just haven't had enough time. We won't make the January deadline. Can you please extend it for us? Is just part of that ploy. Again, speculation on my point part, but I don't think that this is a genuine, oh my God, how could we possibly have this ready for January type of deal? Um, at any rate, the uh, the type of legalese, bureaucratic interpretation, twisting of the rules that they're doing. Oh, that! but this isn't state parties. This is a working group of the IHR. <laughs> Nonsense. And I, I'd like to think that anyone who's actually watching this can see through it. But I know that most people probably aren't watching this because even... James, even yourself, you know, I wasn't expecting, I was expecting to go straight back to sleep because there's not going to be anything interesting here. Can you imagine what the average person who isn't keeping track of this is thinking about these types of meetings? There was some interesting pushback from some of the other countries um, about the developing nations and their role in this process, wasn't there? Um, You know, in a lot of the language with many of their documents, you can see how they're building in the wiggle room. You know, and you read something one way and you look at it from a different perspective. And, you know, Meryl, you know, refers to it as gobbledygook. Well, when you read um, Article 55, there there is no wiggle room. It it says that the nations or the director general can submit proposed amendments and they shall do so four months in advance of the assembly. So, you know, but James, it's not the nations or the director general. It's a working group. It's a yeah. totally different thing. There's no precedent for this. He literally said this would be a first. And so since there's no precedent for this, it means you can't do it. Right. Exactly. It doesn't mean you can make up your own rules. <laughs> but this is what the principal legal officer came up with. So um, he's he likes to split hairs. And of interest, his name is Stephen Solomon. And you may recall that his namesake, uh, King Solomon, talked about splitting a baby in half uh, to solve a problem. So this guy is is very good at splitting things, but uh, we'll, we'll see a little bit more about how he does it. His job is essentially to try to make a silk purse out of the sow's ear. They've failed. And he's in the you know enviable position of having to try to you know come up with some cockamamie you know legal explanation to explain the group's failure. So my my take on it is go right ahead and fail. You get to come back next year, keep negotiating, that's fine. But the rules are straightforward. 
You submit whatever you may have come up with now, and and we get to look at it for four months. That's why that rule is but there. But to some extent, this is the whole point of the entire process that we're facing. Okay, I agree. I think that this is a, a stupid on-the-fly interpretation that they're doing for their own purposes. But what is our role in this? What do you and I get to do in this situation? What is our uh, ability to say, no, you can't do that? There is none. There's no recourse for us in this process other than to say to our selected representatives that were voted on by the voting machine uh, 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 that are installed in every country around the world right now uh, that, oh, guys, please do something about this for us. This is well, just rubbing it in our face that we have. There's no place for you and I to have any opinion that matters in this. Well, I'll disagree a little bit with you, James, because the emotional charge that I got when I watched this person clearly trying to manipulate the rules, I think this is the kind of thing that if everybody who's watching this video takes this video and people get to see how they're trying to weasel out of their own failure, um, it, it, it triggers an emotion just short of rage, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a raging, you know, kind of person, but when I see hypocrisy, when I see lying, when, when they blatantly tell you, they read you the rule, and then they read you a bunch of legalese to try to get you all confused, right? You know, these are not the droids you're looking for, just watch the clock, you know, while I try to hypnotize you with a bunch of words to try to put you back to sleep. He failed at his job to try to sugarcoat their yeah. crap sandwich, right? It yeah. They've messed up. They have screwed up in the way they've conducted these negotiations. The global south and the global north are not meeting in the middle because they're not talking about health. They're talking about money. And you know this, this whole charade really, in my view, belongs in the World Trade Organization. This is a trade dispute about intellectual property and equity. They're not talking about, oh, how do you make people healthy and what's the best thing to do for somebody's health? They're not even talking about any of those regulations to make sure that the jabs are safe and they actually impart immunity and stop transmission. They're not writing those regulations. They're not writing regulations about how you um, determine cause of death or how you have a diagnostic test that could actually tell somebody whether or not they really are a danger to humanity and they shouldn't be allowed on a plane. They're not talking about their um, ability under Article 21 of the WHO Constitution, Section E, where it says they should be writing regulations about advertising and labeling. How about those blank inserts? How about we get some regulations preventing that? They're failing to do the very, you know, you got one job and they're failing at it. And, you know, poor Stephen Solomon, he's got to come along and try to sugarcoat it with a bunch of fancy legalese to try to cover for the fact that they are failing. Well, they're what, failing you know, they, at their front, their public front for this agenda. But that was never right. what this was about. It was about right. the money grab. That's that, well, that's a very big part the of power. it. Was and now the they're just trying grab. to cover it up with legalese, bureaucratic nonsense. And you're right. If there are millions, millions of people that were watching this and were had their eyes on this and were following every move of this and were outraged about what was happening, you better believe we could have a genuine uh, voice in this process and we could bring attention to bear on this. But hey, what, the latest sports ball results or the tabloid <laughs> story of the week. 
people are not paying attention to this. We need millions of people paying attention to this. And I'm sorry, we don't have that right now. Well, I'm an optimist and I, 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 I feel it coming because if people watch what they said in this meeting and then they realize what kind of a person their legal advisor you know, really is and what they're really trying to do, it's as plain as that. I, I believe that way back at the beginning of all of this, they hoped that they would just quietly have all of their meetings. They would, you know, quietly adopt this. They'd have a little press conference after, and then a period of time would go by, and it would be, you know, enacted into force at whatever time period that might be. And then when they started implementing it, everybody would go, "Wait, wait a minute, where did that come from?" The beauty is that you and Merrill and, you know, people all around the world are are talking about this and they are watching this more than the WHO would have ever imagined. And so, you know, I, I you know, I, I hold out an optimistic view that a video like this with what is going on in, in these secret meetings, because, you know, they, they met all week from October 2nd to the 6th um, and, and the documents that they're negotiating have been kept absolutely secret. They have showed us what the original submissions were, but this whole year, it's, it's more than a year since the original documents were submitted, we have not been allowed to see anything. The rules make it so that they would have to submit it in January to get four months to look at it. And what they're hoping to do, in his own words, is you know the latest one could be sometime in May, and then boom, just before they get to vote on it, um, they show it to everybody and boom, vote on it. That's just absolutely Well, we not find out exactly. afterwards. I mean, they yeah. don't have to show it to us ahead of time, what they finally negotiated, negotiated, or perhaps was, you know, waiting in the wings for several years until they finished their charade of, of a negotiating process. They don't James have Carter to do anything because they can just reinterpret their own rules as the way they like at any time. But it is, it, it, you're exactly right. It is about public pressure and public opinion and mass awareness of these issues and people following it and people putting pressure on it. The last thing they want is people paying attention to this and scrutinizing it and looking at it because they want this to just go ahead and it'll just be a news headline one day. Oh, there's this new accord and oh, look at these new regulations. Okay, great. There's keeping us safe. And they don't want anybody looking into the details of it. You and Merrill and many other people are doing that. And that is the threat to this, but only, and I say only if every single person who is watching this conversation right now is as fired up and motivated about this as we are and, and commits I will share this information with 10 people this week and not go into the, oh, but nobody listens to me and I, I don't like doing that. And what? No, we have to get the word out about this. This is incredibly important, world-shaking stuff that's going on right now. And most people are not paying attention. To Having it. said all that, so what happened last week, and I didn't know it, um, it was very quiet, is the foreign operations bill was, uh, the appropriations for foreign operations was passed in the House, 212 to 216, and they took out all funding for the WHO, considerable funding for the UN is gone, funding for John Kerry is gone, the climate envoy. There's, so there's a lot of good things were, you know, good to defund, got defunded. Uh, you know, some funding for the World Bank, funding for the World Economic Forum, gone. Now that bill will go to the Senate and the House and Senate will try to, you know, 
figure out how, you know, how to do, make a bill that works for both of them. First, it'll go through the Senate, then it'll go back. And it's important that we talk to our senators and our representatives and say, we want these funding cuts to stay in the bill. Don't you dare start refunding the WHO at UNESCO, et cetera. Um, we don't want John Kerry, you know, flying around in his private jet telling us that we're, you know, we, our carbon footprint is too, too broad or something. So it's important. It's important. Those um, bills will be, uh, that, that particular bill will be up in the next month or so for, you know, a, a conference between the House and the Senate and a final vote. So tell your reps and, mem and senators no more funding for the WHO and uh, yeah, take it away for the UN too. All right, let's let's play. So let's play a brief clip of of Steve Solomon at the WHO on Monday, explaining what the rules are and how he's figured out a way to get around them. Article fifty five of the IHR, including this four month requirement, has never been applied to amendments submitted collectively by a subdivision of the Health Assembly. The WGHR is a subdivision of the Health Assembly under Rule 41 of the Rules of Procedure of the Health Assembly. Thus, there are no precedents to rely on with respect to the manner in which the four-month requirements set out in Article 55 should be satisfied. That is to say, Article 55 has been applied to amendments proposed by a state party or by the Director General, but never by a subdivision of the Health Assembly. Accordingly, an option for consideration by the working group would be for the Director General to communicate in January 2023 the following documents to all states' parties. First, the proposed amendments as originally submitted by member states and already communicated by the Secretariat to all states' parties by email. And second, the proposed amendments, as they might be shown on the screen, at the closure of WGHR 6. This approach would allow work to continue in the WGIHR, if necessary, up until the 77th Health Assembly itself. The WGHR would be expected to report to the Health Assembly in May 2024 that agreement could not be reached on the proposed amendments. This deadline cannot be changed as it was set out in decision WHA 759. This approach just outlined for your consideration would fulfill the four-month requirement in its purpose as prescribed by Article 55 of the IHR, while at the same time allowing the working group to continue its consideration and negotiation of the proposed amendments, including possible modifications to the package that would be communicated to states' parties. Should this approach be considered satisfactory, the WHA, the working group may wish to consider reflecting it in the report of this session of the WGIHR. Thank you, co-chairs. Yes, so the, the point of that is that this guy, Steve Solomon, their, their top lawyer, has come up with a legal, legally, you know, a fake legal argument 
for why they no longer have to give the public four months to see these amendments before they get you know, voted on or, or selected, whatever you want to call that process. The gavel comes down and they say, yep, done. So uh, he's saying because they weren't submitted by individual countries, but they're being submitted by this group, which is looking at what the individual countries submitted and, and working on it and trying to harmonize it and you know make it simpler, um, because they're doing that process and they haven't done quite the same process before, ah, that gives us the excuse, we don't have to submit these ahead of time and it'll be a done deal before the people of the world even know what's in them. So that's what he's saying, that's the lawyer. Now, the WHO doesn't want you to think that this guy is a weasel. They want you to think he's adorable. He is so sweet and cuddly, we love him. So this is what they put out um, at the beginning of the summer. Hi, okay. This is Stephen Solomon, and he's one of WHO's lawyers. Stephen's got a stellar track of working on international health agreements, including Influenza Pandemic Preparedness Framework, or Tobacco Control Treaty, and many more. Stephen is best placed to explain the legalities of the Pandemic Accord. So, let's begin. Okay, Great. ready? Alright, here are some quotes for you to check out and tell our viewers what you think about it. Thank you. The WHO are introducing a pandemic treaty that will mean they'll be able to take your tax dollars without listening to your opinion or giving you the chance to vote on it. Is that democracy? So this is Russell Brand, who I like and whose videos I watch. So there's no there's no taxation in the treaty. Um, the WHO is an international intergovernmental organization. It doesn't tax. Only countries have the power to tack. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely dig into that. You have to realize that at the time that that was, you know, going around, Russell Brand had been talking about a version of the treaty that was saying that, you know, governments would have to use 5% of their gross domestic product, you know, in specific ways. And 20% of pandemic response products would have to be given over to the WHO. So what Russell Brand was saying was that our tax dollars, which are given as assessed payments to the WHO, would then be used in the manner in which the, that document at the time was demanding. And so, yes, technically, weaselly, um, it doesn't you know, levy a tax on individual people. It just accepts those payments from nations that came from tax revenue. And so what you hear with these people usually is a, a, a confusion between many, many people. And I think we'll see some of this coming up. Many people have been looking at some of the information that's maybe in an older version of the CA plus or in the amendments. And he then says, oh, the treaty. Well, it, it's a way of putting this legalistic, you know, precise statement to counter somebody who's maybe got it a little bit off, but has the spirit of it. They're trying to do all of these many things in this very secretive process with the amendments. Many people, unfortunately, just keep saying all of this is the treaty. And so he then says, oh, they said it's in the treaty. And he knows that it's not in the treaty, it's in the amendments. It's, it's a partial truth. It's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. 
They're playing with these weaselly little detailed words. But if you read the documents, you can see how they are playing this game. They set it up for two tracks to get everybody confused. They decoy you with this while all of this work is going on secretly. I'll ask everybody. Um, the amendments have been available to them since September 30th of 2022. Has the WHO had a public comment period about the amendments? Zero, absolutely nothing. And that's the way they want it. We did back in April of 2022, they gave us six days notice to have a public comment period about then what didn't even exist, you know, just the concept of the pandemic treaty. We got 33,884 people to submit public comments. And nine, we came to find out in August when they finally released them that 99.9% .9 of them were, we don't want no stinking treaty. But what did the WHO do? They canceled the June public comment period and they put up on their website in big red letters and I screenshot it and I still have access to it. They said, you know, we're, we're gonna cancel this public comment period because we want the public comments to support what we're doing, right? There is no democracy, there is no transparency, there is no open you know, discussion of the facts because they have not let leak out for the amendments, whatever the current version is, we're not privy to it, we're not allowed to see it. And for the quote unquote treaty, they've a couple of weeks ago said, we're gonna throw away the four versions that we've had so far. And by mid-October or October 30th, you know, maybe we'll get a trick or a treat at the end of the month from the WHO. I'm, I'm betting on, on trick, it's not gonna be a treat. They're coming out with a negotiating text because the different nations are very upset with them because they are the ones running the show here. Um, you know, if I can bring up the Delphi technique, I think what they're really doing is they know where this is headed and this is all theater and they're busy building the Global Digital Health Certification Network. The NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, the United States back in December of last year allocated a billion dollars a year to go into the World Bank pandemic fund. Well, earlier in the year, they started dispersing a couple of hundred million dollars they're busy building the laboratory networks that they're purporting to be negotiating. So, you know, if the, my understanding of the Delphi technique is they have a nice theatrical production to make all of the nations think that they're, they have a say in the matter. And then at the last minute, they'll drop the document that's been waiting in the wings the whole darn time. And everybody thought they had an input into it. Well, they know where this is headed because they're already building the networks that are being negotiated before the negotiations are over. Sadly, I think you're exactly spot on with all of that. And um, the problem, you know, in, in an interesting way, to a certain extent, the trick that they're trying to pull is to some extent their Achilles heel if it's exposed because yeah, I mean, the WHO doesn't have direct taxation ability. It can't tax you individually, you silly conspiracy theorist. Well, no, that's not what re really we're concerned about. It's one, the fact that the funding for the uh, WHO comes through voluntary 
contributions from its member nations, right? So, uh, oh, you know, it's not you being taxed. It's just your tax money is going to the WHO. It's a totally different thing. But beyond that, it's the things that they're embedding in the various amendments and uh, and proposals that are on the table for earmarking certain amounts of funds from um, from governments to go to, towards this or towards that. And it's not like the WHO has the ability to come in with troops on the ground and enforce it and extract the money from your government. It's all part of this, this voluntary agreement. And it's because you're you're a member of the WHO. So what's the real answer here? Don't be a member of the WHO is the real answer. But that's the one they don't even want you to consider that possibility. That cannot be on the table for this discussion because that's where, you know, as long as as long as this process is going on, you're right. They are in charge and they will set the rules and they will unleash whatever they want at whatever time. And yeah, they're already building the infrastructure for what they're supposedly negotiating. Yeah, but don't worry, guys. It's a negotiation. No, it's all smokescreen and theater. And it is designed specifically to get essentially the public either completely uninterested and not watching it at all, or to the extent that they are placated that there's some kind of process at play. And you're right, Delphi Technique, we want, we're very interested in your public response and your opinion, and we'll definitely take it on board. Actually, we don't want it unless it's in support. But anyway, it's not going to have any effect whatsoever on these negotiations, which, as we know, it's already a pre-ordained, pre-decided. Question is, who decides? He often asks that question. In this case, it is countries that will decide. So the treaty aims to do three things, better preparedness for pandemics, better prevention of pandemics from starting in the first place. And when they hit, a better, fairer public health response to those pandemics. And at the same time, making sure that countries which are in the driver's seat and are in the driver's seat for writing it, remain in the driver's seat for all of those things. Uh, well, that triggered okay. me, and I'll, I'll explain why. Because um, what he didn't say in there is the magic word that because he didn't say it, a, a large number of nations are very unhappy. The charge that was given to this these negotiations was equity, right? What we're dealing with here has got nothing to do with health. What we're dealing with is a, a set of negotiations that would be better done in the World Trade Organization. This all started when the original idea that the nations would share jabs and give it to frontline workers, you know, in hospital settings who are maybe more at risk of dealing with patients and elderly and vulnerable people, that was supposed to be the starting point around the world. But the wealthier nations, Canada, the United States, UK, European Union, got contracts for you know many, many, many jams. And the nations of the global south, the African region and so forth, they were very unhappy that they were being treated inequitably from a world trade perspective. These negotiations are not about any of the things he's talking about. And the nations who are pushing back and are not agreeing are not agreeing because the nations who have the money, have the intellectual property, have the manufacturing capacities, they don't want to give up what the relatively poorer nations are, you know, from the very beginning are saying. And so in these meetings, they state very clearly that the purpose of these negotiations is equity, 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 equity. Well, you know, stocks are referred to as equities in the financial market. And if you own your home, and you pay off a little bit of the mortgage or it goes up in value, you have equity. 
And so if, if you take a look at any of these documents, what you really see is a venture capital prospectus and, and we're having a trade dispute. You know, it's kind of like the Canadian hockey um, uh, joke, you know, uh, went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. You know, you're at the WHO talking about health and they're not talking about health, they're talking about money and intellectual property and equity. And, and so they haven't even gotten down yet to talking about where in the world that money might be coming from. The UN had a meeting two weeks ago and one day was in support of the amendments to the international health regulations and the pandemic treaty. And at that meeting, Tedros, the director general of the WHO read a statement. And in that statement, he said, quote, governments and multilateral partners have already commenced building the foundations for a safer world with the establishment of the pandemic fund, the WHO hub for pandemic and epidemic intelligence, the WHO biohub to voluntarily share novel biological materials, in other words, pandemic pathogens, and the messenger RNA vaccine technology transfer hub. So if this whole process is about the member nations, why has the WHO already started building all these things? That's the question. And um, these things that it wants to do, like the intelligence and the uh, novel, the sharing of novel biologic materials, i.e. biological warfare agents, um, these are things that are specified in the in the versions of the treaty and the amendments that we've seen so far, but they haven't been fully negotiated, they haven't been accepted, they haven't been voted on, but WHO is already building. They want to give themselves surveillance power, determine treatments, vaccine mandates, vaccine distribution, vaccine intellectual property and profits, and they want to redistribute basically everything in the name of pandemics. So first of all, surveillance power. The treaty won't give surveillance power to WHO. What it would do, the treaty hopes to do, is to make surveillance, public health surveillance, faster, better, more reliable. Well, again, what did Tedros say at the, at the UN? He said that the nations will be required, and that he used the word required, um, that, they that the WHO will need member nations to take measures to counter and address the negative impacts of health-related misinformation, disinformation, hate speech, and stigmatization in order to strengthen pandemic preparedness and foster trust in public health systems and authorities. I mean, that sounds like a pretty direct requirement to perform surveillance of people's media, social media, you know, your presence on the, on the internet and uh, to control it. And in fact, um, I don't remember if it was the treaty or the amendments require that nations only allow their citizens to spread the WHO's narrative on public health. The, the trick in that little um, montage was that the host from the show Redacted had essentially a list of things that are recommendations in Article 18 of the um, in existing international health regulations. She did make a little mistake because she said the treaty. And so what Stephen Solomon did, which is the game that they set up to play, 
yes, a little mistake, but the core of it is amendments that were presented to the international health regulations from Bangladesh would cross out the word non-binding in the definition of recommendations. And then Malaysia said that all recommendations shall be implemented by the nations. The only mistake in the presentation from the host from Redacted was that those were in the amendments, not in the WHOCA plus. Now, if Stephen Solomon was an honest broker, he would say, well, uh, let me correct this here. Those things are in the amendments, but they're not in the treaty. But that's not the way they play the game. He said, oh, the treaty doesn't say this, and the treaty doesn't say this, and the treaty doesn't say this. And those things are true. But telling a partial truth to hide the whole truth is as much of a lie as telling a blatant you know, pile of mal or disinformation, which is you know, basically what they do for a living. And uh, yeah, let's bring in the citation on that for people who are interesting. So interested. So from February of 2023, WGIHR2, specifically Annex 1, core, uh, Section A, core capacity requirements for disease, disease detection, surveillance, and health emergency response, um, num which subparagraph 1, state parties shall utilize existing national structures and resources to meet their core capacity requirements under these regulations to identify public health risks in accordance with principle 2B, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, th there are core capacity requirements that are embedded in these regulations for surveillance. So right there, I mean, exactly contradiction of what he said. But as you say, it's the legalese. No, it's not in the treaty. It's in the, it's in the, the amendments. Also, the treaty isn't going to give WHO power to uh, dictate vaccine mandates. The treaty won't give WHO as an organization, as a staff, the power to dictate anything. And it's important because WHO provides an independent voice, independent of any particular country, independent of any particular interest group. And so recommendations from us, which are based on science and evidence, offer countries a tool if they want to use it to help their response. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to believe that he's saying all this stuff with a straight face. Oh yeah, we're completely independent, except that 85% of our funding comes from private interests, you know, and not from assessments and we do whatever they tell us. Yeah, the, the flip side to that, um, I had a friend ask me some detailed questions and um, I published an article several months ago because in April or May, they released all their financials. And so I dug down deep into the assessments and centered in, it stuck in my memory, looking at how much the Central African Republic had to pay in assessed dues. And if memory serves me, it was $4,750. So for small nations, the price of admission is you know, relatively small. But if they're doling out $100 million contracts to build laboratories or, you know, do genomic sequencing labs or, you know, just, just the amount of money that can be funneled into a relatively poor nation, that's a pretty good return on investment. And so, you know, I look at that and, you know, I'm not going to make an unfounded um, accusation, but if it only costs you $5,000 to be given a seat at the table and the reward for supporting whatever the organization wants can come back into your nation with millions of dollars of business. Um, I can see where 
it's not the corruption in the direction that he's implying. It's a different direction of corruption. You can buy votes with promises of contracts for nations that, you know, they need that economic boost. And, and so this is such a complicated, I know we have a video that you're gonna play at the end of this. The details of the corruption are at a level that are astonishing. And so they, they you know, his job is to try to sugarcoat the gobbledygook that they're putting out and make it sound good. But once you know enough to know what he's actually not saying, um, it's despicable, absolutely despicable. Right, I, I think we're going to hear more on that conflict of interest issue coming up, but uh, to address what he was saying about, no, we can't de de dictate any vaccine mandates. Um, as I know you've pointed out, James and Merrill, um, Article 18 of the existing IHR has all of these recommendations of advisories and advice that the WHO can give to its member parties um, about, uh, for example, requiring medical examinations, reviewing proof of vaccination, um, requiring vaccination or other prophylaxis, et cetera. But these are just recommendations, guys, just to relax. All the WHO is can give, it, give its advice, right? But again, as I know you've pointed out in the past, um, going from the report of the INB's uh, second meeting, Back in July of 2022, they had that uh, that language you were referring to earlier about making things uh, legally binding um, uh, regarding the identification of the provision of the WHO constitution under which the instrument should be adopted. The INB agreed that the instrument should be legally binding and contain both legally binding as well as non-legally binding elements. So it again, well, I guess we'll have to wait to see what's in it as uh, was famously remarked on legislation in the US uh, several years ago. But I guess it absolutely could include the WHO dictating vaccine mandates. We just, we don't know yet. And they won't tell us presumably until it's already a done deal. Right. Now, the last version of the IHRs did um, say that um, vaccine uh, passports basically um, would be required. And so the, what's the reason to have a vaccine passport? Your vaccine passport makes no sense without a mandate, right? If you need a passport to get on a plane, that's a mandate to get vaccinated. So when WHO says we're not going to mandate vaccines, they're already talking about mandating vaccines. Um, well, presumably again, they could leave it up to each nation to decide, you know, uh, if they want to. But it's just you have to have the proof of the vaccination. But we all know where this is going. And we know what this is really about. It is about the creation of the Global Digital Health Certificate, because that is an absolute important linchpin of a whole number of different agendas, one of which, of course, obviously infringes on, on supposedly the health issue. But of course, as we know, it's not about health. And, you know, just to point out the obviousness of the lie, um, you know, here's a vaccine passport, okay? And if you open it up and you look at the form that you fill out, that very form is in Annex 6 of the International Health Regulations. So for them to say that, you know, they don't mandate vaccines, what they want to do, as James said, is just dramatically expand that. And it's a very sneaky move, because if you go back to um, um, Novak Djokovic, the tennis player, a number of months ago, he was not allowed to compete in the United States because at that time, the U.S. was requiring any foreign citizens to have a vaccine passport to get into the country. Time went on, they dropped the requirement and he was allowed to come in. But the way they're playing this game is if they can get every nation to have requirements 
that restrict the rights of foreigners, then those nations can say, oh, well, we're not restricting our citizens' rights. But if every nation does that to all foreigners, then all of us are in you know, a, a global lockdown. We're in a, a prison planet where, yes, our nations can argue, well, we're not infringing upon our citizens. We're only infringing upon everybody else in the world. So they have a very savvy system set up. But the real problem is, well, number one, these things are not vaccines. They don't stop transmission or infection. They actually probably make those things worse. The tests that they use have 97% false positives. If you run the cycles up you know, to 30, 45, um, these certificates are garbage. And so if you have a computer system and you put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. And so what I hope is that you know doctors around the world will very clearly start speaking out about how these things are not valid certificates of health. How do you have a prophylaxis certificate? What in the world might that be? You know, if they were to write regulations that explain that to me, I would listen. But they're not doing any of the regulations that they should be doing. They're not regulating, you know, advertising and labeling and, and testing and, and whether or not some injection that's got a whole bunch of DNA in it can be called a vaccine to certify one's health. It's absolutely absurd. Um, another thing we should um, remind listeners is that in legal documents, the word shall means must. We should also remind people that there are there are likely to be enforcement mechanisms that a number of people have said accountability, that the nations need to be accountable to the WHO and to the other nations for what they're signing up for in these documents. So that the, the idea that there will be punishments if you don't go along um, is, is built in. One more thing, the WHO wants to take over borders. So even though you say, well, they may not, you know, mandate something in your country but if you want to cross that border the who is going to decide you know whether you can whether it's a vaccine certificate you know a, a pcr test or something else they would like to be in control of that process at the very least they want to regulate the, the certificates themselves and then the pretense the fig leaf might be that each nation state can decide particularly what vaccines and things that they'll want but as you say that the whole point of this is the global standardization of everything and this will be the carte blanche for every nation state to say well we're just following who advice and that advice is coming from the completely impartial sage advisory board for example of the who director general oh wait maybe there are some conflicts of interest there i think we're about to get into that as well so um apparently ukraine has already tried to put people's a lot of people's lives online in an app so you can get government documents you can get your vaccine passport etc cetera, etc cetera, in ukraine all in the one app the dila i think it's called um what I suspect is that the whole the vaccine passport and the digital ID, which are basically overlapping concepts, um, are both um, a Trojan horse to bring in the central bank digital currencies to take away our ability to um, buy things with cash and to have all our finances monitored and controlled by the state, whether that is the US government, 
Jap Japanese government or the WHO or some other entity. Can I just double underline that and put like 18 exclamation marks uh, after it? Because absolutely, this is the way that I understand what is happening right now. Yes, the global digital health certificate uh, concept and vaccine passport digital documents for getting across borders is the foot in the door. And it is part of a much larger agenda that will tie into digital identification, will tie into central bank digital currencies, will tie into various forms of social credit. It is happening. And the way they are going to introduce this to the public is in the name of health, right? This is all about health in some manner. And so I absolutely see it as the Trojan horse that you're portraying it as, and this is exactly right. And that also indicates that what we are facing is not just the World Health Organization. Yes, withdraw from the WHO, absolutely. But don't stop there because you're gonna have to withdraw from the UN. And while you're at it, how about every other, how about the Bank for International Settlements? What's that? What's, what? I've never heard of that before. Yeah, we, we gotta start understanding that there is a much deeper international organization that's going on here. And World Health Organization is just one face of this, one that's gotten obviously a lot of attention in the past few years. Um, I'll, I'll drop a little bit of news from the future um, with my hopeful um, view of things coming. Um, I've been working with folks in Canada who are this close. I, I, I don't want to um, promise it, but I'm nearly 100% sure that there's going to be an official petition submitted to the parliament um, in Canada to exit the UN and exit the WHO. Um, conservative um, MP Leslie Lewis recently submitted a petition that got in, in Canada, they actually have a, you know, a, a lawful petition system like we don't have in the United States. And so the rules are that in 30 days, you have to get 500 signatures in order to have the sponsoring member of parliament present it to the parliament. Well, back in April and May, in 30 days, instead of getting 500 signatures, they got 18,973. And so this petition to exit the WHO and the UN, um, I encourage all my Canadian friends, give me a phone call. And I know everybody thinks I'm crazy, but it's been a great part of my life. My phone number is 310-619-3055. If you're in Canada, um, please reach out to me so that I can give you all of the information. I do believe that this is going to be coming very soon. It's just one of the starting points to get people you know, aware that this is absolutely an option. Here in the United States, we've already got legislation, HR 79, that's got 52 co-sponsors. But what I've been pushing for is for people to call their senators because what's missing is one senator to have the courage to just copy Andy Biggs's legislation and submit it in the Senate. And, and so if you want something to do, reach out to me and we'll get you hooked up with you know a, a simple letter to every senator in the United States to say, look, um, you can pull a, a, you know, a very simple task for one of your members of your staff just copy from the House and put it in the Senate, and we'll take it from there. We'll we'll start sharing that information because we've got 13 months or so of electioneering coming upon us, and it's really very simple. I don't see your name on the list here supporting this. I guess you must be a globalist. But the fact is, is that this rhetoric around we want a cohesive global response, that's all well and good. But you have to ensure that those kind of ideas aren't subject to potential corruption. So Russell Brand puts his finger on a critical issue. One of the tools which WHO has, which is really important in this and was invented 
by WHO, by the countries in WHO before the pandemic, is something with a long title. It's called the Framework for Engagement with Non-State Actors. Short title is FENSA. And what FENSA is basically, it's a fence against conflict of interest. So we have ways of engaging with all these external actors, which may have an interest in what we're doing to reduce, hopefully eliminate conflicts of interest. Yeah, so does WHO have any conflicts of interest? Have they built a tall fence and kept it out? Or is there fence, you know, uh, a hurricane fence and anything can get through it or can you drive a truck through it? Well, Fari Hassan in South Africa has created some uh, amazing charts that will show you where the conflicts are, who's involved, and basically, you know, the WHO is a cesspool of conflicts. So um, here we go. We're going to show you the film. It'll be 20 minutes and you're going to you're going to have a hard time believing some of the things you see. Thank you. Our objective here is as Africans, um, and you'll see my introductory slide, you know, is, an, is really to rally, uh, is to rally uh, Africans, you know, to raise our voices and roar, roar lions roar. That is <laughs> my call. So with that, I'll launch into uh, my uh, presentation. So yeah, so look, uh, I think even the last uh, statement capturing global health by subversion has been overtaken. They're basically doing it openly now. You know, it's 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 like crazy what is happening around that they don't even hide the fact that they are um, uh, basically uh, going to take over and try to impose on us a global security health uh, uh, regime in order to impose uh, the oppressive laws on us. So. Yeah, so this slide kind of gives us an overview, but I won't obviously go into the whole. What I would like uh, our audience to focus on is the, the second and third one. The second one uh, really it is where the World Health Organization is basically where these globalists uh, have come together and to impose on us a, a, a policy and a regime in order to control us and impose. And they're using the second tier policy distributors in order to do that and of course as you can see there one of them is the world health organization which we'll focus on today but before we get there there is um before we get there there is i want to just put some, some of the uh uh role players that is uh, busy with us now many people would not have heard of vanguard blackrock and state street you know uh the world economic forum uh many have heard of this but all of this coalesces into a global security health agenda that is being imposed on us, you know, uh, in, and they're using the World Health Organization. I think earlier it was mentioned, they're using them as a conduit. So these are some of them, you know, uh, of the rulers of the world, I would say. And what is these um, BlackRock and Vanguard? They are really a asset management companies that have been and vanguard together with state street they control about 23 uh, sorry 21 trillion dollars worth of um, of uh, stock uh, in the world 
and effectively they control governments, they control uh, all the banks, and, and, and later you'll see how this ties into the global health uh, uh, infrastructure and, and architecture. Um, they control basically big pharma, they basically control uh, all, and you'll see how this ties in with the World Health Organization. Um, as you can see here, BlackRock, as you can see there in red, BlackRock effectively controls and have shareholdings and controlling interest in effectively all the pharmaceutical corporations that basically um, are producing the COVID vaccines, really. So effectively, um, my take is they control the uh, rollout and the uh, pharmaceutical industry uh, in that effect. And you'll see this is the same for Vanguard. They also heavily invested in the uh, the candidates at producing COVID uh, vaccines. The same goes for State Street, as you can see here. Uh, State Street, as you can see, clearly their COVID, uh, uh, all the candidates for COVID vaccine, uh, 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 they've got uh, investment interest in it. And even the auxiliary industries, so, you know, PCR and, uh, and ELISA's and all this. So again, yeah, South Africa. What's the influence in South Africa? And you'll see here, uh, and you'll see here uh, that uh, what I did was, and, and, and I encourage everybody to do this in their own countries. Effectively, BlackRock literally controls our economy. They control banking, mining, pharmaceutical, insurance, mobile, media. And, uh, and of course, this includes the, the healthcare system as well, you know. So, yeah, uh, you know, BlackRock has invested in our electricity utility, parastatal ESCOM in South Africa. You know, I'm sure it's in your, they've bought South African bonds, they invested in, in, in transport and so on. So they effectively control South Africa's economy, you know. Uh, so now we come to the World Economic Forum. Remember earlier, I mean, I had that uh, slide where, you know, the nexus of BlackRock, you know, this Asset Management Corporation and World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization. So, and of course, uh, as you can see there, um, this is what, uh, what uh, Klaus Schwab had indicated, what they imagining for us, and they're busy implementing it. And their partners, you know, I mean, this is not an exhaustive, uh, this, the slides that I'm showing is not exhaustive because I try, you know, in interest of time, I had to cut it down. But look here, the major partners, you know, and what, what is a World Economic Forum partner? It is a partner, they describe it in, by definition, that they will be an entity that will implement the World Economic Forum policies all over the world, right? And as you can see, all of the vaccine candidates, uh, countries, uh, sorry, uh, companies are there. And of course, year earlier, the UN, of course, the entity of the UN, and this is what uh, Antonio Guterres uh, said uh, recently, you know, vaccinate the whole world. Um, now, let's come to the conflicts of interest within the World Economic Forum, I mean, World Health Organization. As you can see there, now I need to explain that there's two types of contributions. There's, the, there's voluntary contributions and there's assessed contributions, right? Now, what does... Uh, um, Assess contributions uh, uh, mean assess contributions is where countries actually donate to and 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 in uh, donate to the world uh, WHO, but these are this is a money that the World Health Organization can use uh, as they wish. There is no restrictions on it. However, voluntary contributions is different. Voluntary contributions where the entity giving the money can determine how it's being used. 
and impose a regime on the WHO of how to and where to, and they can restrict the usage based on their interests. So this is very important voluntary contribution. And this is uh, where the, the independent of the World Health Organization and why I earlier, uh, I think Shabna mentioned why it's essential that Africa needs to get out of and exit, because this is why uh, uh, Dr. Angari earlier mentioned about the, the role of Bill Gates and WHO in the in the tetanus uh, saga. This is why they can do it. You see, if you look at Bill Gates, 80% of the funding comes from voluntary contributions. And look at the, who is the largest uh, contributor, 45%, and it's probably even more, is contributed by the Bill and Melinda Gates. And why have I highlighted Gavi? Because the Bill and Melinda Gates when they actually controls Gavi. They, in fact, they have given up till now, they've given $3 billion to the Gavi and they effectively control uh, Gavi. And you can see all the entities named there, really, as all of them are invested in the COVID industry. You know, so clearly, effectively, all the voluntary and the, which is the large majority of the contributions is given by entities which effectively benefit from the COVID in the COVID-19 vaccine industry. I mean, and here I just mentioned a few others. Uh, you know, the earlier uh, Dr. Ngari mentioned about the population. The Population Services International fully is fully geared towards population control and imposing regimes such as uh, uh, controlling reproduction in Africa. And uh, and I just mentioned a few below. I just mentioned a few of the universities that's involved. But I've done this is a limited slide. I've done quite an extensive in South Africa. All the all the uh, in fact, uh, all the university in South Africa is basically on the bandwagon uh, and invests in uh, uh, the World Health Organization and so on. And some of them are even um, partners to the World Economic Forum. And here you can see the contributors. I mean, I'm not going to go through, but as you can see, this is another slide that just indicates the the power that the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates has because they basically invested in all these companies. So basically, that 45% that I earlier mentioned, that's only the world, uh, that's only the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Effectively, because of the shareholdings and all the other entities, they control more than 50-60% uh, of the WHO funding. Uh, and uh, that's another slide, so I'll, I'll, I'll skip. This is, <laughs> interestingly, <laughs> PIPs is personal injury protection, basically insurance. So you can see the, the uh, same companies, pharmaceutical companies, are investing in the World Health Organization and, and donating as protection, as insurance against any uh, injury claim. You know, and then there's the service contributions and so on as well. You can see this in-kind, meaning they supply uh, medical supplies, the PCR kits and, and, and PPEs and so on. So uh, the same companies, basically, you know. And the interesting here, the World Health Organization guidelines on the use of vaccines, you know. So basically what I'm saying is that the, the guidelines that was uh, uh, initiated that, that the World Health Organization used during the COVID-19 uh, crisis in order to impose this regime on the world, the guidelines was written by uh, a few people something uh, uh, 2004 called Nicholson, and you see the Prof. Hayden and uh, Arnold Monton. And I just wanted to see there that basically all of them take money from uh, pharmaceutical corporations, you know, either for traveling or the papers get uh, funded by, and even the, the units get funded by GlaxoSmithKline, Roche, and, and so on, etc., Novartis, and so on. Um, 
So a year again, our snack and again, uh, guidelines that was written for that the World Health Organization, by the way, implement in their policies is written by people who are clearly conflicted in the uh, Professor A.B. Osterhaus. I mean, you know, uh, was paid by uh, Roche uh, and so on, etc. So these are, and yeah, the, I'm sure, I don't know if anybody has heard of the COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund, which is uh, largely funded by uh, industry. You can see there, Johnson & Johnson, Baxter, uh, Merck, and so on. So they're all conflicted. And, it can, and you can see at the bottom, uh, you'll see the Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation. So even the, these uh, um, foundations are in on the act, you know, and benefiting and by the way, these Rockefeller foundations and the Wellcome Trust, they are not, uh, um, uh, they are entities that actually invest in the in Johnson & Johnson and Merck and uh, Pfizer and so on. Then we come to, and, and I'm sure everybody, <laughs> you know, uh, knows about uh, the famous uh, Tedros, right? And I mean, uh, I'm not using that uh, word there um, uh, lightly, I'm actually I'm using that uh, uh, because this is clearly what he is, you know. I mean, he's their man on the inside, and if you look at that, I've I've put together his track record. You can see his track record there. He's of course now the director general of the World Health Organization, but he's actually worked as for in between 2009 and 2011. He was the director of the Global Fund, which is fully funded and started by the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Gavi, which receives three billion dollars from the from world sorry from uh, from bill and melinda gates fund and then heavily funded by the pharmaceutical industry he was a member of the board of gavi and un aids as well clinton foundation you know the institute for health metrics and uh, uh, evaluation basically um uh, that that in america that started the modeling on COVID is funded by the bill and melinda gates he was on the board there you know ashman and so on and uh, I mean, so he's clearly a hack. I mean, Harvard uh, Institute. So you, he comes from a line of people that basically was earmarked for this position to become the hack uh, uh, for, for for big pharma. And uh, and here, I, I don't know. I'm sure everybody is aware that um, he was part of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, and which was, uh, I mean, this is a screenshot of the US Homeland Security Global Terrorism Database. And yet, uh, clearly, uh, it shows that they were on the terrorist watch list. So he was effectively a member of a terrorist organization. And uh, so clearly, he's uh, conflicted in that. And what does South Africa do? They give him an award. <laughs> Unbelievable. What I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, that our, our government, South African government, has totally sold out to the World Economic Forum and Globalist Agenda. Um, and here is, uh, um, you know, there's a, there was always the three people that uh, uh, is the spokespeople for the World Health Organization. And this is Maria Kerkovi, who once said that asymptomatic, uh, there is no uh, asymptomatic uh, spread is rare. Uh, and they checked her for that. But she's, in fact, a clearly a, a hack. Um, she's an Ivy League, as you can see, an Ivy League uh, person uh, that comes from all the illustrious uh, uh, universities, you know. And interestingly, she, when she was at Imperial College, uh, her supervisor was none other than um, Neil Ferguson. So that tells you a lot. And uh, on the right, and she's also cites in many of her papers, she cites Bill and Melinda Gates funding, NIH, CDC funding. 
So uh, my time is running out, so let me just maybe uh, move on. And yes, Sage, the, the strategic advisory group of experts to the World Health Organization, and there's 15 of them, they all completely uh, uh, conflicted from the chair. What I simply did, I did a, a check on the papers that they published, and in all of them, all of them cite Bill and Belinda Gates, Sanofi, Pfizer, uh, USAID, you know, Global Fund as funders to the, to, I mean, they all conflicted. So clearly whatever comes out of the advisory body to the World Health Organization on vaccines, you cannot trust it, you know. And then, uh, yeah, so that's all of them. I won't go through all of them. And that is, uh, yeah, so, oh, sorry. Let me just see, maybe I should just uh, uh, then move on. Oh, by the way, just here. So the the, the World Health Organization launched a global vaccine action plan. I'm sure uh, everybody knows about that. For those who are not aware, it was a 10 a decade of vaccine. And the World Health Organization put in, in charge in the leadership position of the world of the vaccine action plan, none other than the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Gavi, UNICEF, and and none other than the NIAID, which is basically Fauci and them. Unbelievable. I mean, I don't know how they get away with this. And so lastly, I mean, I'll just, uh, um, there's Gavi conflicts, so uh, they're totally conflicted. I'll just move. The Gavi board chair, uh, Jose Manuel Barosa, I mean, for God's sake, man, he works for Goldman and Sachs. You know, I believe he's been noted to be at Bilderberger Group and so on. Unbelievable, you know. And then uh, the A is seen uh, in in partnership with none other than Klaus Schwab. And then this is another Margaret Ann Hamburg. I won't go into this, but she's totally conflicted. She's a, uh, in fact, Henry Shrine and Enelum, uh, the companies, basically is invested in the pharmaceutical industry. You know, and she's a board of directors and them. And and by the way, she's also the. Uh, let me just go back. She's the FDA commissioner. Unbelievable. So just lastly, I'll, and the, here's the intergovernmental negotiating body, the body that is now determining the world uh, WHO pandemic treaty. And again, unfortunately, I've got to admit South Africa is prostituting themselves again at the altar of Mammon. You know, uh, their precious Matsoso is, uh, was a former director in South African health. And then uh, international uh, health regulations, which uh, uh, my, my brother Sabelo mentioned. Look who is on the board. <laughs> Unbelievable, the committee. None other than Professor, the disgraced Professor Neil Ferguson. And you can see all this conflict of interest. Uh, earlier, I mentioned Professor Arnold Monton and Nancy Cox. I mean, Prof, uh, Maria Zombon is, uh, is totally conflicted. And how they can be directing and determining the health regulations for the world. I mean, it's totally unbelievable. And there's, I'll just... Uh, so look, I'll just leave it there. I mean, let me see. That is uh, our president, Cyril uh, Ramaphosa, at the World Economic Forum, prostituting himself. And uh, here is a list of the South African Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19. And I highlighted the people in red. They all conflicted, totally conflicted. And that is the Professor Salim Abdul Karim, the overarching chair. He's the Fauci of South Africa. And you can see, I don't even need to mention, you can see all his he's totally conflicted in everything that he's doing you know i mean uh, 
he he's their man and then of course for his efforts he's been elected to the world science council and then uh, and then a person by the name of professor helen reese which is uh, head the chairperson of the south african health products regulatory uh, committee um basically um sh she's totally conflicted i mean for god's sake she she uh, hits the uh, she's one of the advisors to the world health organization on vaccines on covid vaccines can you believe it and so then uh, and here she's uh, founder and director of the wits uh, health and Repro sorry reproductive health and HIV. and as you can see this is all their donors and partners it just reads like the who's who of criminals you know uh, covid and criminals incorporated so okay so let me just uh, go on and uh, how do i get to the end and then, then this is global health security agenda, but I want to get to the end because I want to. Um... So I'll end there and says, please join me in stopping the WHO pandemic accord. And uh, Africa, rise Africa, roar lions, roar. And thank you very much. Join Robert F. Kennedy Jr. live at the Children's Health Defense Conference November 3rd through 5th. Come together in Savannah, Georgia with powerful speakers like Vera Sharav, Catherine Austin Fitz, Asim Malhotra, and so many more. We'll rise and resist as we fight industry corruption, mass surveillance, and censorship. Don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity as we advocate for worldwide rights to health freedom. Visit this link to see the complete lineup of incredible speakers and topics. Space is limited, so register today.